And now to get us started on the steps and traditions, I'll turn the floor back over to Chris R for step one. Chris, floor is yours for the next 45 minutes. Thank you. Thanks, Billy. It's uh, go back to something I just said real quick. Uh, it's, uh, I, it's not a day goes by that I don't get a call from somebody, usually a family member or, uh, you know, uh, somebody that I've known in AA for years and that's relapsed. And, you know, everybody wants to go back to the same topic. You know, it's like, well, you know, I know this works for some people, but it's not, it won't work for me. And then you talk to them a little bit and find out that they're not doing what we have been asked to do. And in, in defense of so many people out there, a lot of these people have not been asked to do anything but come to meetings. You know, I'm not going to beat it to death, but I'm just saying, folks, it's like I owe my life to those old geezers that that uh, put their dinner off for a few minutes to sit with me and show me how to get well and uh, to get me on the path. Once I saw what it was, and you couldn't stop me. And uh, it was uh, it's pretty, pretty special, guys. Uh, did the work, had a completed fourth step. I'm sitting on the tailgate of my truck, haven't even done a fifth step yet. And it dawns on me, the obsession's lifted. All those years later, guys, two weeks in, I had this spiritual experience. And, uh, you know, I can't tell you how many people I've watched have the same thing. So I want to talk about, uh, there's a guy in town who always talks about, there's no one step more important than the others. You know, and I know that they're all important. They are. But uh, if you look at the, um, table of contents, it'll throw you off a little bit because uh, some of the chapters have multiple, you know, steps listed. Uh, again, I can save you this little deal I did. It's a little index of where the steps actually are in the in the big book, and I can send it to you. Uh, it'll tell you exactly where the steps are. So uh, if you look at the, the first hundred pages, give or take a page, they're, uh, they're talking about uh, uh, all 12 steps. 60 of those pages are about the first step. The next 40 pages are covered in the next, uh, are co- the next 40 pages cover the next 11 steps. It's just, I mean, I think Bill Wilson was pretty clear, guys. Without a basis to, to, to go on, if you're not really convinced you're one of us, you're not going to do this work. Everybody says they will. Are you willing to go to any length? Everybody says they will. I've never had anybody that didn't, that didn't, that said no. They say they will right up until the point you ask them to do something that they don't want to do. And then they start crumbling. But if they're convinced they've got a fatal progressive illness called alcoholism, they'll they'll do it. I sat in Alcoholics Anonymous for seven years. I called myself an alcoholic and didn't any more believe it than the man in the moon because my stories are not as bad as your stories. I can't possibly be like you. When those guys started showing me the symptoms, my life started changing. And uh, I'll be more than glad to send you one of those little indexes. Uh, I should get tired of watching a whole bunch of people uh, relapse uh, only to find out that they've just been, you know, they've never had a clear picture about what this thing was really about. And uh, if you look in the forward to the second edition up in the front of the book, guys, a lot of y'all know where that is. Uh, it talks about a success rate of 75%. I was on a Zoom last night. I was talking about membership surveys. It was pretty fascinating. These stats right there, guys, as close as we can get with a few uh, in and out guys, people were staying sober. 75% success rate in 1955 when that book went into its second printing. Right now, if you look at chip sales, which is not scientific, but you look at the membership survey, we don't have anything like that. 
It's like we we took something that absolutely worked, and then we have allowed it to all be watered down. I'm going to give you a real quick analogy, and I'll I'll go quick. The uh, it's like an ugly pill. You know, the pharmaceutical companies come up with a pill for ugly. Some of you in here would qualify for that pill. Probably. And it's just, it's a nasty pill and it tastes bad, but it really helps people that, that are that are ugly. But they're not selling too many because actually there's not that many ugly people out there. There's some, but some homely people. Okay. But nobody, the homely people are not going to take the pill because it's too strong and it's got all these side effects. So they watered it down and they started selling a gabillion of these and it worked great for the homely people. All too bad, but it didn't work for the ugly people anymore. Think it's a perfect analogy. That's what we've done in Alcoholics Anonymous. We've watered it down, watered it down. Easy does it. Think, think, think. Take your time. It's all not a great in all the little one-liners, and it just drives me crazy. How many people come in and don't don't even know the symptoms of alcoholism? Had you known the symptoms to ask, you could have diagnosed me at 18 years old with alcoholism. But nobody was asking me those questions. They're, they're asking how many drug driving charges do we have or how many blah, blah, blah. It's, um, I don't know. My bottom was not listening to your story. My bottom, guys, I've never had any, I've been doing this for years. I've never had an email or a phone call from anybody. It says, Chris, I remember you on the talk and talking about eating out of a dumpster in Houston, Texas. And I, and I stopped drinking that day and I've never touched, never had one. I've had thousands of emails from people that finally understood what the first step was about and got sober for the rest of their life. Pretty cool. Once you know the symptoms, because at the end of the day, guys, let's look around. I'm talking first step stuff. You look around this together. We got a bunch of people in here. We got 550 so people. I'm going to tell you guys, we have people from all crosses, all walks of life here. We got old geezers. We got young people, good-looking people, ugly people. I know, god dang it, got some Yankees on here, had Phillies here. We got, oh, come on, guys, got all walks of life. The only thing that ties us together is not the color or our sexuality or our gender, none of that. What ties us together is that we're all experiencing the same symptoms of the disease. And why in the living daylights would we not want that newcomer to understand that, to see that? Just speechless. Our chief responsibility, Bill read it earlier, is, is an adequate presentation of the program. An adequate presentation of the program is what we need in order to uh, work the steps. It's up to the newcomer whether they decide to do that or not, but at least have we given them everything that they need to do? Like, that's, I go back to, you know, if all we're doing is telling them to keep coming back, you know, we, we're not doing them. That's not much of an adequate presentation of the program. Somebody has to sit down with me and show me how to do this. And uh, that qualifying took to like 20 minutes. This is going to take 45 minutes to explain this to you. Guys, come on. And you can stay in touch with me, holler, and I'll help you with any way you want. But we need to be working on it. This is like in sales, like an elevator speech, you know what we're talking about, where you can promote. Yeah, that's what we're, we need to have with our first step. This doesn't have to be long drawn out. And God help us if we're going to start on the title. Page. We're going to read. No, the book never says, let's have the newcomer read. It says, hand him the book and ask him to read it. Okay, and then we're going to show them what one looks like and see if they can identify with this. Man, I mean, it can happen in a setting. It's 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 actually yeah, pretty amazing. 
in on 135, Bill Wilson's talking about Dr. Bob. He says he didn't fully understand what it really understand what it meant to be alcoholic. Again, I've called myself an alcoholic, but I couldn't have told you what it was to be an alcoholic because I always want to connect it to the drama. And it's it's not. One thing I want to mention in here before I get into this. There's there's uh, there's three little parts to this illness symptoms that we can look at. Bill Wilson talks specifically most about the first two uh, symptoms, and I'm going to touch base on it, but understand that there's a little thing, and Bill Wilson refers to it in several places. I'm not going to take time to go to it, but he talks about the progression of progressive illness. Alcoholism is progressive, folks, and it, 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 but it progresses in different people in different rates. So I've worked with one of the worst alcoholics I ever worked with was a little 19-year-old young man, and uh, he uh, had drank twice, blacked out both times, had a drunk driving charge. I mean, he was in-state alcoholic at 19, and I've worked with a sea of old geezers that drank successfully for 30 or 40 years, and it was only towards the end of their life that all the wheels started coming off and really started affecting their life on the outside. But you could have diagnosed all of these people if you'd have known the symptoms and talked about that. And I just think if we understand that, we can we can help. We're not those old timers used to talk about waiting. You know, you know, you haven't lost enough yet, guys. You can lose it all. You can't scare an alcoholic into recovery. Stop. You don't want this to happen to you, do you? Nobody thinks that they're going to be a loser like you ever. You can't scare us, but show us the symptoms and we can identify. It's a self-diagnosed. You know. We got people come into treatment all the time. A doctor thinks they need to be there. They wouldn't be there. A lot of them have lawyers that think they need to be there. A lot of them have family members. All of them have family members that think they need to be there. The only person I care about is do they think they need to be there? Because at the end of the day, we're the ones that have got to do the work. It's a disease, folks. I guarantee you we've got this many people on here. There's a bunch of you in here that still don't believe this is a disease. You still believe this is a behavioral problem. It's not. Dr. Silkworth did some real good writing about it, guys. This stuff about alcoholic personality is rubbish. I'm sorry. We're all a little bit different in that, guys. Y'all, he wanted to paint this picture, clear as he could possibly be, guys. From the doctor's opinion, up in the front, Dr. Silkworth wrote, Dr. Silkworth, and uh, uh, up to page 23, Bill Wilson talks about the physical craving. What happens when I put alcohol in my system? It separates me from other people. Um, from 23 to 43, we talk about the mental obsession. The next that, the 20 pages, that's where those great stories that Bill talked about, uh, Fred and Jim, there's five stories in there, uh, all of them based on true individuals except the jaywalker, which is perfectly applicable to us. And um, uh they're really great stories. I'll mention a little bit about that in just a second. But uh, And the only time I'm going to mention this, I'm going to stay really close to what the big book's talking about, of course, because that's what I believe we're here to do. But uh, I can give you uh, information out there about the genetic nature of this. The doctors are out there, folks. The jury's in. And uh, by 1961, the American Medical Association had got off dead center and stopped calling it an illness. Uh, it's a disease. And because the symptoms are the same for that little 18-year-old girl and this old crusty guy with one eye. You know, it's they're the same. And uh yeah. 
but the genetics of this play such a huge part in this illness. So most of the people I can talk to, they can look up their family tree and give it a good kick. And little alcoholics drop out of the top like pecans on a windy day. So I'm just saying, you know, not everybody, you can see it can jump generations, but it's, it's, it's there. It's not causal. I'm not going to say before I get into this, I want to make sure y'all all get clear. I'm not saying my external world didn't affect my drinking because it did. Y'all got, it just, it is. Uh, trauma, drama, grief, lots of things that goes on in our lives can affect, or the word is exacerbate our alcoholism. It didn't cause it. So stick with us and I can send you the stuff. I, I just, there's so many people out there that have got a trump card they want to throw down every time things get tough. You know, well, you don't understand. I was hurt. I, I, you're right. I don't understand. And I do know that good therapy can help you with all that. I just, I'm a huge fan of therapy. I'm just saying if you work the steps, your life's going to change. It, it just absolutely will. My bottom was not eaten out of a dumpster in Houston, Texas, which I did one time. My bottom was understanding what my problem was in 1987 after a suicide attempt and those old guys showed me and I went damn I'm I'm this is this I didn't have all these psychiatric disorders guys I was on seven psych psych meds uh, uh, a day when I tried to commit suicide you know all, I have legitimate psychiatric disorders y'all need to understand that I'm not doctor shopping like a bunch of you losers y'all need to hear this you know <laughs> It was so cool to find out that I didn't have all of those, all of those illnesses. What I, what I had was, and there was nobody out there trying to hurt me, but I didn't have those illnesses. What I had was untreated alcoholism. Fact. Dr. Silkworth was a chief neurologist at Towns Hospital for um, 16 years, I think it was. Uh, Towns Hospital is not there anymore. The building is. I think it's a condo. Billy can tell you. It's right down there on Central Park. You can go by. You can. I've walked by it. You can see it. And uh, Dr. Silkworth was a wonderful guy. He actually treated Bill Wilson the first three times. And then on the fourth time, when Ebby took him back, he treated him the last time. Bill stayed the whole time because Ebby was sitting on him and uh, made sure that he got a, a, an idea of this spiritual solution. This is where it came. And uh, Bill started pursuing this right then and there. And that's when he had his spiritual experience sitting in treatment. And I got to tell you, folks, there'll be people that will disagree. I have watched thousands of people sit in treatment and have spiritual experiences. This, this absolute nonsense that you have to be sober years before that spiritual experience will take place is ridiculous. It happens soon after you get off your butt and start doing this work. I've never seen it fail. So feel pretty strong about that, do you, Chris? Yes. <laughs> Silkworth was amazing. Let me tell you real quick. He started seeing similarities between all of us. The people that were coming to treatment, it's not like today when we have tr specialty treatment centers on every corner. They were bringing English royalty would come to this treatment center in Towns Hospital. And he started seeing the same similarities. Once these folks started using, there was this phenomenal craving that kicked in that, that at certain times, the book says, they would lose control and drink more than they intended. It paints a picture in the front that it was every time, guys. But I know people in the progression of the illness that drank successfully for periods of time. Every time I drank, I didn't turn into a zombie. But there were times that I drank that I did not want to turn into a zombie, and I turned into a zombie. Y'all follow? Sometimes the craving can be satisfied with smaller quantities of alcohol. But as the illness progresses, and I can't tell you if that's six months from now or 
I mean, it, it can go really fast in some people, really slow in others. But at a certain point, uh, your tolerance levels will start changing. And, and it means you start putting that stuff in your system. This is why we have a lot of people that relapse around substances they're putting in their body that trigger that craving. Most of you alcoholics end up relapsing around prescription medication, over-the-counter medication that has alcohol in it. You can't put alcohol in your system without triggering that craving. One of the things that Bill Wilson uh I can't tell you how many people I've watched relapse on non-alcoholic beer. There is alcohol in it. It's it's to a low enough level that the food and uh, drug folks will allow them to label it non-alcoholic, but there's enough in it. Food that has alcohol in it, don't. I don't care if it's been flamed or not. There's enough in it that can trigger that craving, and you'll be off to the races. Watch so many people. A lot of people don't understand it, that the... uh that phenomenon of craving, I mean, detox centers crank out 100% successes. We, we can get you detoxed off the alcohol. The problem is we can't keep you detoxed. That's what drives me crazy when I hear people in meetings, just don't drink no matter what. But I'm going to drink no matter what. You know, don't, need, don't drink even if your butt falls off. My butt, I'm almost 70 years old. My butt has fallen off. <laughs> Trust me. If I could stop myself, I would. And I just, I want to show you. Bill Wilson in the front, I got to read this real quick. On the bottom page 20, 20 and 21, these are some good pages. Because Bill wants us to, to discuss this. He wants us to see it. There's three places in the book that he talks about different types of drinkers. Moderate drinkers have little trouble in giving up liquor entirely if they have good reason for it. They can take it or leave it alone. Then we have a certain type of hard drinker. He may have the habit badly enough to gradually impair himself physically and mentally. It may cause him to die a few years before his time. But if a sufficient strong reason comes along, ill health, falling in love, change of environment, warning from a doctor or a PO, <laughs> if any of this becomes operative, this man or woman can stop or moderate, although he may find it difficult and troublesome and may even need medical attention. Hard drinkers. A lot of hard drinkers in AA, folks. But given sufficient reason, they were able to stop. But what about the real alcoholic? He may start off as a moderate drinker. It may or may not become a continuous hard drinker. But at some stage of their drinking career, they begin to lose all control of their consumption once they start. That's me. I used to have a T-shirt. We did a T-shirt that says, I'm the person on page 21. It's funny if you wear it to an AA conference, how many people don't know what that is. But they'll ask, yeah, don't wear it to Walmart because everybody in the place is going to ask you, what, what's on page 21? <laughs> I'm the, I am the real alcoholic. I got to say it real quick, guys. If y'all want to stir up a hornet's nest, I mean, really, go to your AA meeting. I don't think, I'm sure it's a wonderful meeting. Introduce yourself as a, as a real alcoholic and watch somebody make a comment. Oh, you think you're special? Yes. In AA, you are. Thank you for being here. Okay. We need you. That's, <laughs> that's for a fact. Looking at these symptoms, guys, real quick, I'm going to mention, because Bill Wilson, three places in how it works, he talks about the ability to be honest. If you can be honest, you can get this deal. The only prerequisite he gives us in this book, that's, that you don't have to be particularly bright or smart or whatever, it's, it's, if you have the ability to be honest with yourself, you can get this. What is your truth based on your experience? Not what somebody tells you, but, but what you've experienced. Have you ever got to a little place when you were drinking alcohol, but you ended up drinking more than you intended. 
you know, you, you show your butt, you come back the next day, nasty hangover, says, I'm never going to do that again. And then you do it again. That's that's the, the phenomenal craving. That's, at that point, it's like being allergic to a food. If you got, you know you got a food allergy, then don't eat that food. Who knew? You know, who knew? Yeah. Okay. But if you keep going back and eating that food, we have a psych unit waiting for you. <laughs> People go, what are you, crazy? Yes. That's the same thing with the alcohol, folks. Nobody wants to use that word. But the, t- the truth of the matter is we're, we're insane. Bill Wilson uses the term over and over. Most everybody I've ever come across understands the mental upset of, excuse me, the physical allergy. You alcoholics, once you start to drink, you can't stop. Okay, Oprah Winfrey understands that. Y'all understand that? Every doctor out there understands that. Alcoholics, okay, got that. Where we lose them, and so many people in AA, is that they don't understand the mental obsession. I'll say it again. From 23 to 43, guys, these 20 pages, Bill Wilson does a masterful job in those stories. I don't have time to read them, uh, but uh, the stories that Billy mentioned, again, Jim, the car salesman, that uh, suddenly the thought crossed my mind, I could put an ounce of whiskey in the milk, y'all follow it, and it wouldn't hurt me on a full stomach. Yeah. The simple, the simple fact that an adult's drinking milk anyway freaks me out. That was probably psychiatric on his part. I'm just saying, his own personal opinion. But I mean, this idea, and then this guy has like eight glasses of milk, you know, in the next 30 minutes. It's like, oh my God, it's just, uh-uh, uh-uh. The, the things that we do, Harry Tebow, Bill Wilson shrink for a million years. He said, and I'm going to paraphrase it real quick. He says, we can hit a thousand bottoms, but unless we surrender at one of those bottoms, we're just going to keep hitting bottoms. How many of y'all in there, just to show of hands, the ones I've got the cameras on right there, how many of you guys have gotten to a little spot? You close the bathroom, you're sitting there um, looking at yourself in the medicine cabinet window or that big fancy mirror, and you got tears in your eyes banging on the counter saying, I cannot keep doing this. Let the let the recorded record shows all the hands are up. Y'all thought we yeah. <laughs> That's beautiful. You should see it. Oh my God. Yeah. At what point does I change my mind qualify for insanity? You didn't change your mind. This is what drives me crazy. I'll give you this. Bill Wilson, excuse me, uh, William James, uh, one of my favorite authors. He's a tough read, I got to tell you, but beautiful. He's one of Bill Wilson's favorite authors in there. He says, your bottom is at the point of which you can no longer tolerate the misery. Which means, guys, you wake up one day and you're tired of this relapse stuff, you can stop. You don't have to go to jail or rob a liquor store. I'm going to say it. I said it the other day, talking to some people. I I got a guy right here that's got nothing going on except he's drinking too much. I got this guy over here and he's got a bunch of legal problems and he's got a liver that's coming, fixing to come out of his side. And uh, he's in all kinds of trouble and his wife's leaving him and he's getting fired. And which one of these guys is going to get sober? Where everybody goes, well, the guy that's got all the bad shit happening to him. Wrong. It's the guy that gets off their butt and actually does this work. If I could remember the consequences of a week or a month ago, I would stop. Look on page 24. It's the only page, other page real quick. 
Bill Wilson's pretty good. This is the secret handshake. When I'm sponsoring somebody, we're talking about the steps and stuff. And I'll always end up like, hey, buddy, let me look at your book real quick. And I'm going to look over there because they just got out of treatment or whatever. And I'm going to look over. And if they don't have this little italicized page marked, I'm going to I'm going to eat them. We're going to have a conversation. That means I'm going to talk and they're going to listen. Guys, if there's one paragraph in the book that, that, that I would take any newcomer to, it's this paragraph right here. So you guys get busy, mark it. Top of page 24. Italicies writing. Bill Wilson and the little squiggly lines. Y'all know? The fact is that most alcoholics, Bill's trying to be very diplomatic. It's all alcoholics. For reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force, memory, and suffering of the humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. Did y'all get it? I mean, I got people all the time. I hear them. I got up this morning and chose not to drink. Did you? How cool for you. Oh, bless your heart. That's what we say in Texas when we want to say something else. Y'all, this ridiculous. I did not. I've, I've recovered. The obsession's gone. I didn't have to make a choice whether I'm going to drink or not. When the obsession comes back, you're going to use. That's the insanity of alcoholism. Guys, everybody's waiting for it to get bad enough for you to come up and say, God dang, I didn't know. I'll, I'll stop. But you can't remember the consequences of a week or a month ago. And Bill Wilson is pretty, pretty absolutely clear on that. I got to tell you one real quick story out of experience, guys. I was, I was uh, treating this nice lady from town. We were at the place and, and I was up there visiting with, with, a, with a little room full of them talking about some of this, this work. And, and uh, uh, I watched this lady and she'd struggled in, in AA before. But anyway, she had uh, gotten in trouble with the law. She picked up a couple of her little kids at a school function and she'd been drinking and, and she got nasty with them and the cops got called and the Child Protective Service got the kids, and and it was just, it was nasty. Anyway, this little lady came to treatment, and she was a sweetheart. She comes up after treatment, uh, excuse me, after we were talking about this, and she's got Polaroid pictures of her little kids, and she throws them in my face, and she says, you see these pictures? These are my little kids. I said, I know, I, I met them before. They're cute as could be, you know, as far as little kids go. And uh, um, I don't have any little kids. I don't know. They're all cute. But, and she said, she said, uh, you need to understand, I'm going to put these pictures on my refrigerator and I'm going to look at these faces every time I go in that kitchen and I'm never going to touch another drop because if I drink again, I could lose these babies. And I said, yes, ma'am, you, I, you go for it. But in the meantime, you might want to look at the work too. Maybe the 12th. Anyway, she leaves and a week and a half later, she drinks. She couldn't remember the consequences of even a week or a month ago. The thought crossed her mind to drink. She thought she could drink a couple. The craving kicked in. She They took her kids again. She got them back. Y'all follow? This time she was sitting on the front row of the AA meeting with a big book open and a highlighter in her hand, ready to do some work. You know, she was, she was convinced. Everybody out there thinks that they could quit. I'm on a liver transplant list. God dang it, if I drink, they're going to, I'm going to die. Everybody in this gathering is going to die. Or go to jail if we keep drinking. But nobody believes they're really going to do that. That's why I'm saying it's a waste of time to try to scare anybody into recovery. Show them the symptoms. Physical craving. Control. Mental obsession. Y'all follow? Is, is, that, is that, that mental blank spot that the book talks about that tells us that we're going to, yeah, 
that we're gonna we're gonna drink if we drink if we're gonna die if we drink again. It's 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 mind blowing how many people you talk to that flat don't understand that. You need to understand the most insane you thing you ever did was not while you were drunk. And some of y'all did some insane things. The most insane thing you ever did was cold stone sober. You picked up a drink again. After spending all that money for treatment or after all that legal stuff or all this stuff. And, and you picked it up anyway. And your families don't understand it. It's tough enough to get alcoholics to understand it. I guarantee you, your families don't understand it. I get people call me all the time talking about their daughter. What is she crazy? Yes. <laughs> Hold that thought. Yes. The book says around that, we are strangely insane. Uh, when they started showing me this, guys, I got to tell you, I got the, I, there's some hope in me because I finally realized what was wrong with me. I asked the old guy, I said, buddy, when you get sober, will that obsession come back? I said, buddy, if you're doing the work and things are, you're supposed to be doing, that obsession will go. I haven't thought about taking a drink in 35 years, folks. And there was seven years in AA where I didn't ever stop thinking about it. Real quick, I want to mention this, guys. I can stop drinking for short periods of time. And I want all of y'all to hear that because I don't want to paint this picture. that Every time I drank, I blacked out and robbed liquor stores because I didn't. There, but So sometimes I could drink a little bit and, and get away with it. But as the illness progressed, like, it was less and less likely to happen. But I've quit a thousand times. But what takes me back a lot of times, folks, is this internal discomfort. And it's not always the mental obsession. It's this internal discomfort Bill Wilson talks about. When I do two and three in a little bit, we're going to talk uh, specifically about those bedevilments. This internal discomfort that comes uh, back to us when we stop drinking. Those old timers that drive me crazy sometimes, just don't drink. Okay. But you see, if you're a real alcoholic and you just don't drink, you're not going to get better. You're going to get worse. Pretend this is alcohol, guys. When I sit this down, this is the solution. Remember I was telling you about that story about me uh, uh, drinking at 17 years old, and I was just a little skinny, just uncomfortable in my skin, kid. And I drank that bottle of Boone's Farm apple wine and all of a sudden started feeling okay. I wasn't drunk. I'm going to kick the world in the butt. I was just comfortable in my skin for the first time ever. Alcohol is not the problem. Alcoholism is the problem. Come on, stay with it 10 seconds, guys. Alcohol is not the problem. It's the solution. You take alcohol away from a real alcoholic, we don't get better. We get worse. That's why detox centers crank out 100% failures. We can get you past the detox. We can get you past the physical piece. But when this internal discomfort, that irritable, restless discontent, the book talks about the low self-esteem, the feeling of uselessness, that, that boredom, the anxiety starts to come back. I've done it a thousand times, friends, so have you. I'll put the plug in the jug and I'll be going to some meetings about two weeks in. I'm a two-week wonder, guys. I can stop for two weeks. For a, I've stopped for two weeks just to piss somebody off. I can stop for two weeks for an ugly woman. I can, you know, I, I can do that. I can stop. I can't stay stopped. The further away I get, all of a sudden, that internal stuff. Two weeks sober, I'm not working the steps. I'm driving around the 
goddamn traffic in Dallas, flipping people off, cutting people off. Y'all understand? Mad at the world, yelling at the radio station. You, you know, uh, I'm just a mess. Pull into a 7-Eleven, walk into that. St- I've done this a thousand times. 7-Eleven, walk into that store, go back to the cooler. Won't get me a Dr. Pepper. Something got to knock the edge off here. And I grab a Dr. Pepper and I hear this little voice in my head. You could probably drink one beer. No, man. Uh-uh. That's how it always starts. No, no. What are you, a wussy? Open the cooler, put the beer back, let's get the Dr. Pepper back, open the other cooler, grab a beer, stand there for a few minutes, put the beer back, open the other cooler, grab a quart. If it's going to be a beer, it's going to be a big beer. Y'all got it? High five. I grab that beer, walk up to the front, I'm fixing to pay for it. Guys, some of y'all have heard me talk about this before. I'm sitting there looking at that line up there in the front. There's like 15 people standing in line. There's one little cashier up there working his butt off. And there's a little old lady. And she's come in and she's bought a stack of scratch-off tickets about four feet tall. And she's standing up there. at the. She bought the tickets. Now she's going to stand there at the counter. And she's little old lady. She's going to scratch off them tickets. Y'all follow? 15 people in line, and I'm sitting back there with a quart of beer, haven't even got it in my system yet, dripping on the floor, and I'm sitting there flirting with a lady. Oh, baby, you go, lady. God dang, save me some. Man, I hope I get me one of them scratch-off tickets. Y'all follow? Everything's just fine. Haven't even got it in my system. All the irritable, restless, and discontent's just gone. If I'd have got a Dr. Pepper in my hand, I'd had to walk up there and whip that lady. That's it. That's all there is to it. 15 people, hey, some of us have got to go to work. What are you doing? Y'all follow? Uh-uh. Just alcohol is my solution. That's why so many of us fight tooth and nail. The last thing we want to do is come to AA when we're going to have to stop doing it. But we don't realize that we're going to get worse when we stop drinking. That's why the steps are so important. That's why Bill Wilson never could stay sober. He could get detox, but he couldn't stay that way. The unmanageability on page 52 that they talk about, guys, is absolutely true. Big book, when it's talking about the unmanageability, is not talking about my external world. It's talking about what's going on internally. That's the stuff. It doesn't matter how much money you got in the bank or what kind of trophy wife you got or whatever. It doesn't make any difference. I am not a happy camper when I don't have alcohol in my system. You look on the bottom of page 64 real quick. For those that think this is two-part, I just wanted to show you real quick so you won't send me a nasty email later. <laughs> Bottom of page 20, uh, 64, talking about resentments. Resentments the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From it stem all forms of spiritual disease. For we have not only been mentally and physically ill, we have been spiritually sick. When the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. Bill Wilson wants to paint this picture pretty clear, guys. He's not offering us, in the writing of the big book, he's not offering us a solution where every day we're going to have to hang on for dear life. And I've heard people in AA present it that way. Every day is a struggle. It's not. The book talks about cease fighting anything or anyone, including alcohol. 
That's what we're gonna. That's what we're going for. But that is a direct result of actually working the steps. I mentioned this real quick. I'm got about five minutes left with you on this one. I a lot of times what I'll end up doing when I'm talking to, to the little newcomers, I, I I take this in, and I know uh, Bill Wilson alludes to it. Specifically, though, I watch so many people out there, if they lay the booze down, okay, what happens to a lot of us is if we're not working the steps, we're going to look for something to treat that internal discomfort. Like I said, again, most alcoholics I've watched out there, I can't tell you how many of them end up going to the doctor and tell them, oh, I'm, I'm not drinking one day at a time, but I'm miserable. And the doctor will give them a, a, a bonapin, you know, or, you know, benzodiazepines for anxiety. Okay, they're trying to help, but that'll immediately trigger the craving and send them back into the, you know, the the alcoholism, the the active drinking. But a lot of us won't go with the pills, we'll go to, and that's why so many people out there are smoking pot now. You know, well, I'm not going to drink, but I'm still going to smoke pot. Well, I'm not going to drink, but I'm going to eat. You know, food becomes a real problem for some of us that stop drinking. It did for me. And all of a sudden you start, you just eating to, to make yourself feel better. It's, it's like, there's a cherry fried pie called Tasty Cake Fried Pie. It's, it's made in Philadelphia, out there by the airport. And uh, I'm, when I die, my ashes are going to be sprinkled in, on the, in that plant. Uh, Tasty cake with a K, guys. You've got to get one, okay? Uh, they are the best fried pie you'll ever get. Okay, Jesus is eating a tasty cake fried pie this morning. I guarantee you. Okay, but there's like 685 calories, something like that, in one tasty cake fried pie. Okay, so you can watch me as a I'm competitive cyclist. If I'm out there eating one of those, guarantee you there's something going on inside. <laughs> and I'm trying to treat that with food. Y'all just got to all be careful. I'm not saying don't eat. Pay attention to what you're doing. Watch a lot, a, a, a sea full of little guys that I sponsor who end up picking up internet porn, internet gambling. They get in there, never had a problem with any of that before, but now they're not drinking. They're all looking to treat what's going on inside. If I don't work the steps and I'm just dry, I will look for something to feel, to fix that. You'll start skipping around and all of a sudden I've watched a lot of people that lost a lot more gambling, a lot more um, sex addiction, a lot more, you know, a lot of other things caused them a lot more problem than the drinking ever did. All because it's they found something to try to treat that. internal. You can't. The point I'm making is you can't live in that internal discomfort. You've got to get to a place where you can get to a place of serenity, of peace and comfort. The book talks about a sense of ease and comfort that we used to get from taking a drink. That's what we're looking for. And that'll happen as a result of working the steps. And I got to tell you, for me, I hadn't finished the steps. I was not even halfway through. And that sense of ease and comfort started to come in. And that's some of the stuff that we're going to talk about in the next uh, in the next uh, sessions that we get a chance to talk to you all about. A lot of times when I'm sitting there, the first thing I do is uh, after I explain these symptoms to the newcomer, I'm going to ask them to turn to page 44. I'm going to ask you to do the same thing. It's in the top paragraph on a chapter called We Agnostics. There again, that's why you need this little index because it is confusing. Uh, well, I'm not an agnostic, so you won't read it. But these are the sum up, summation questions of the, of the last 40 pages. In the preceding chapters, you have learned something of alcoholism. We hope we've made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. If... When you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely. Power of choice. 
Or if when drinking, you have little control over the amount you take, you're probably alcoholic. If that's the case, if this is the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. One of the best paragraphs in the book. Y'all follow, guys? It's asking two questions, choice and control. That's how we qualify. And I'm going to end with this because every time I do this, I get an email from one of you that will say, I'm an alcoholic if I say I'm an alcoholic. You're a member of Alcoholics Anonymous if you say you're an alcoholic. But there's a lot of people sitting around that don't understand what this illness is. That's why they're not doing the work. That's why I, I'm so grateful for the old timers in that first group that I ended up. Whoever, they slowed down to qualify me. Guys, with anybody y'all are sponsoring out there, the first thing we need to do is qualify. I don't need to hear about their drunk driving charges. I don't need to hear about their their situations they're drunks so i don't need to hear all the sordid detail i need to hear about the two words choice and control that's the qualifier for first step i'll, I'll see y'all in a little bit thank you so very much chris up next please allow me to present billy n on tradition one billy the floor is yours for the next 45 minutes thanks billy alcoholic Thanks, Chris. Good to be here. I am going to be watching my uh, screen closely because uh, my iPad was not charging for a while. But so let's get going. A couple of things. Um, I think I started off and I'll start there off is what could be more disunifying and Alcoholics Anonymous than talking about a different recovery program than we have? I mean, we always seem to talk about rules and a lot of other things, but when you say that AA is something other than what it is, how disunifying is that, especially for the newcomer? I want to read the long form of tradition one. Each member of Alcoholics Anonymous is but a small part of a great whole. AA must continue to live or most of us will surely die. Hence, our common welfare comes first but individual welfare follows closely afterward. Now, I want to take that statement. A must continue to live or most of us will surely die. So when we say things like, well, I don't care about the rest of AA because I'll always have my group. Or we don't need to do this or do that. The book is telling us that most of us will die if we don't have AA. Like, yes, If you're overseas in a war and in a foxhole and can't get to a meeting for a year, you can stay sober. There is no doubt about it. And yes, if you are an astronaut on the space station and happen to be sober, you can stay sober. But that doesn't mean it's the preferred method. That's like saying if you got shot, you want somebody to take you to a dentist. I mean, I I think if you get shot, you want someone to take you to a trauma center. Um, And it's so important that we keep AA, AA. Now, there are a lot of paradoxes in here, and I want to talk about a few of them. Um, I have my notes for Tradition 1. But the first is individual freedom, because people love that line in Tradition 1. But before we get to it, I just want to read the first line. The unity of Alcoholics Anonymous is the most cherished quality our society has. 
And then a paragraph down, it says this. Does this mean some will anxiously ask that in AA the individual doesn't count for much? Is he to be dominated by his group and swallowed up in it? We may certainly answer this question with a loud no. We believe there is in a fellowship on earth which lavishes more devoted care upon its individual members. Surely there is none which more jealously guards the individual's right to think, talk, and act as he wishes. Now, especially in this era of Zoom, when we have a lot of people out there who are creating their own fellowship and creating their own rules and their own guidelines and their own interpretations, there's a lot I'm going to talk about, especially in relation to traditions four, six, and ten regarding individual freedom. Unity is for sure most important, no doubt about it. And your individual freedom is important. There's no doubt about that. This is where we come into contact with the difference between rules and traditions, and then specifically traditions and customs. We don't have rules. We have traditions. I don't even like the saying, little t tradition, because I can't, what does that mean? Sounds just like a custom. We have 12 traditions. That means some of our groups might tell you how you have to dress to speak. But that's a custom. If you as an individual don't like dressing that way, you don't have to. At all. Now, thank God this is AA. And the ego usually overrides uh, everything else. So even though you get asked to speak, and even though they don't like to tell you how to dress, and even though you don't like that, my experience is most people usually speak anyway. Their, their ego will have them caved. But this, if, if you have, um, I'm going to talk about a couple things in a group pamphlet, but I can't stress enough, especially since we haven't talked about the traditions at all yet today. Please read AA Comes of Age. You don't even have to read it all at the same time. I'm not telling you to stop what you're doing for the weekend. Um, I see where people are from. I'm aware of what football games are on this weekend. I'm not telling people to drop what you're doing and go read, okay? I'm just saying, for most of us that are here today, I just want to give an example of what Chris said. If, if you ran into a person, a newcomer, and, you know, there's usually two kinds of newcomers we run into. There's those that have never been to AA before and the person that's been in and out a million times. We know those two people very well. We, we meet them often. And so if you're talking to someone outside who's been in and out many times and in your conversation talking to them, they tell you they've done everything except AA. Everything else they've done. They have a home group, but they don't want a home group. They don't have a sponsor. They've never been through the big book. They've never done an inventory. But they don't know why they can't stay sober. I mean, that is not uncommon. And I'm guessing for a lot of us here, in a polite and compassionate way, 
we would share with them that if they wanted to try AA, we would be glad to do AA with them. And if they would like to start at the front of the book and go through it, we would be glad to do that. Because for most of us here, and I can't speak for everybody, for most of us, it would be hard for us to understand how AA could work for somebody if they haven't gone through the big book. And I'm not putting down the 12 and 12 here and use the 12 and 12 as an extra piece of AA literature. It would be hard for us to understand that. Like, how do you do that? It's the same way with the traditions. It's kind of impossible to really embrace them without knowing where they come from and without knowing what caused them. I have my AA comes of age here. It's pretty beat up. Um, but, you know, the mistake that's often made is sometimes we talk about this like it's a success story. The big book is the treasure map to the treasure. This is not a success story. This is how a bunch of people tried to destroy AA between Mother's Day 1935 and right around 1946. That's what this book is. This book is all the crazy ways our fool egos got in our way. And almost AA didn't exist anymore. And, you know, for anyone that's especially, you know, the new person on fire, maybe you're not that new anymore, but you're recently on fire. You're on fire with all three legacies. You know, I run into some really good, um, and we'll probably mention some names this weekend that'll constantly come up. Don P will probably be a name that Chris or I might interchange and throw that name out every once in a while. But, you know, he said something a long time ago that really catches my attention as a lover of the big book. He said while he loved the big book revolution, he was very concerned about too many one legacy only AA members in the future. Too many members who just was set on fire with their lives being saved as a result of a spiritual experience in the big book but never went on to grasp and, and understand the traditions. And what I would tell you is what I tell people, and I think a lot of people have some version of this, that when someone asks you to take them through the book, the question we have to ask them is, are they willing to go to any lengths? Because if they're not, why waste your time? Now, if you knew Don, you know what any lengths meant. For those poor people that lived in Denver, it meant going to his house at like 6 in the morning. You know, his home group met at 6 a.m. Um, but any lunch to me today means that you agree to go through the traditions after we're done going through the big book. Because what happens when you take someone through the big book? We all know what happens. You send some lunatic out into the AA wild who is now so entrenched with the big book that they can't help but tell everybody else everything they know about AA and maybe even tell those people that they go to AA light and if they really wanted real AA, they would go to their home group. We've all been through that kind of charismatic stage of membership. It happens to a lot of us. Not everybody, but a lot of us. I don't want to send someone unarmed out there 
without the facts. I don't want somebody going through the big book and then going out there uh, with no knowledge or experience with the traditions. And, you know, I run into some really good members who will tell me there's no need for the traditions. And the only thing I can tell you that I've come up with to ask them is a question that I need to ask myself. And maybe their answer is different. But the question is as follows. If AA didn't exist the last time I got sober this time, would my life still be where it is today? If there was no AA. The last time I returned to AA to have day one, if there was no such thing as Alcoholics Anonymous, do I believe that I would have found another way to have a spiritual experience to get in touch with the higher power and my life would be like it is today? For me, that answer is very simple. It's an overwhelming no. I don't know if I'd still be alive, but my life definitely wouldn't be like it is now. And that's what tradition one has given us. You know, sometimes we get our view of AA, the longer we stay here. Sometimes I say it's described best as too many years and not enough days. We forget what it's like when you come to AA what it's like to be new. Why is unity so important? Why is it so important that this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous exists forever? Because what we see, if we're out in a parking lot or in a meeting room, is we see somebody walk in. We might be able to tell they're new. There are signs of that. But for the most part, we see somebody walk in. But that's a one-dimensional look at the newcomer to Alcoholics Anonymous. What we're really witnessing, I know there's some people my age and older here. And they probably grew up watching a show called MASH. Because what we're really witnessing is a helicopter with a red cross on the side of it. Landing in that church parking lot or that clubhouse parking lot or synagogue parking lot or community center parking lot with a stretcher on the side of it with two people carrying that person who is dying into your meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's who gets delivered to us. Every newcomer we meet there might as well be a doctor behind them with two paddles in their hands getting ready to start their heart at a moment's notice. They might not appear that dead or close to death, but they are. That's how fatal alcoholism is. And so it is our unity that has allowed us to be here. Now, one of the things in the Traditions Illustrated, um, the Traditions Illustrated my current version does not have page numbers, but it's the second page in the first section of tradition one. 
you know, it talks about each of the other 11 traditions explains one specific way to protect the unity of the fellowship and the AA group. So in other words, we might be able to say we have one tradition. Unity. The other 11 are a way to keep it and maintain it and not let it get destroyed. Also, while I'm here, um, you know, it says this we owe to AA's future to keep our common, to place our common welfare first, to keep our fellowship united. For on AA unity depends our lives and the lives of those to come. Once you're on this side of God's window, you've been blessed. I know we love to say in meetings, don't quit before the miracle. Well, my point of view, if you're sitting there with one day of sobriety or more, uh, don't quit after the miracle. Something miraculous has happened to you. People like us are not supposed to have a day sober. Do not quit after that miracle. But that's what we owe to the newcomer. That's why unity is so important. If you if you have an AA group pamphlet in front of you, if you go to page 10, it says the AA group, the final voice of the fellowship. And uh, one, two, three paragraphs down, it says the entire structure of AA depends upon the participation and conscience of the individual groups and how each of these groups conducts its affairs has a ripple effect on AA everywhere. Thus, we are individually conscious of our responsibility for our own sobriety and as a group for carrying the AA message to the suffering alcoholic who reaches out to us for help. Not carrying some other message. Carrying the AA message is our individual responsibility. Um, also in the AA group pamphlet, if you go to page 40, it says more questions and answers about AA. What are the three legacies of AA? Recovery, unity, and service. These are derived from the accumulated experience of AA's earliest members that has been passed on and shared with us. The suggestion for recovery are the 12 steps. The suggestions for achieving unity are the 12 traditions. And AA service is described in the AA service manual, 12 Concepts, World Service, and Alcoholics Anonymous comes of age. AA is a strange organization. I think we can all admit that. You can't be thrown out of AA. I don't know of any other organization you can't be thrown out of, except for other 12-step programs. You cannot be thrown out of AA. Now, how does that affect unity? Uh, They can throw you out of a meeting all they want. All they want. You know why? Because their sobriety is more important than you being an idiot. You don't get to disrupt meetings. You don't get to um, maybe do things. You know, I know we're very into safety these days, and we have the yellow safety card, and we have the safety piece, but truthfully, The original safety program of Alcoholics Anonymous is our 12 traditions. 
if you're interfering with newcomers, if you're preying on people, and I know the kind of predatory behavior we tend to talk about is sexual. There's all kinds out there. There's financial. There's people who use AA as a place to find employees to pay people who are down on their luck less money than they should get paid to take advantage of them. There's all kinds of things that go on, and none of that goes along with AA unity. If your group has those things going on and you take actions to take care of them, including removing someone from your group or meeting, that's perfectly in line with tradition one, as long as it's a group conscience. The unity of Alcoholics Anonymous is affected. You know, some people say, Billy, why are you so... Why do you believe AA literature only believe belongs in meetings? Well, for me, it's because sometimes when we talk about traditions and other things, we always think we're talking to someone with a couple of years who understands, who has basic AA knowledge. A lot of times that's not true. We spend a lot of time blaming the outside world for AA's problems. And really, I'll tell you, if you don't like something a newcomer says in a meeting, I will tell you my experience is more often than not, they did not hear it in a treatment center. They heard it in another AA meeting. And it sounded good, and people laughed. And so they thought, oh, I'm going to put this in my pocket. I'm going to put this in my like note that I put in the back of my head of things that are witty to say in meetings. Yeah. When we do anything that affects a newcomer's view of Alcoholics Anonymous, we affect the unity of AA as a whole. And sponsorship is very involved here about our AA unity. I love that we're talking about the steps and traditions together because sometimes I think the biggest problem is is that they're talked about separately so many times. Your job as a sponsor, if you embrace AA unity, is to help newcomers understand what AA is and what AA isn't. Do you know what I mean? Newcomers don't know what AA is and what AA isn't. And for most of us who've been around here a while, it's kind of more important to let them know what we don't do rather than what we do. Because there's so many bad examples of what we don't do. And it affects our unity. Having a home group that's connected is super important. Having a GSR, having an inner group rep. Because what else affects our unity? Well, people that just talk trash but are not willing to be involved in the solution. The last couple of years, there's been a lot of decisions made by the General Service Conference that some of our fellowship has not been happy with. It's amazing to me how many people I talk to. By the way, I'm going to just give you a little something that I've learned. 
The question when talking to somebody like that is not, does your group have a GSR? Because AAs love angles and love loopholes. And it's easy for them to say, of course. Now, the question to ask them is, who is your GSR right now? My experience is that most people who complain to me about these things, they cannot tell me who the GSR of their group is. But if you're not attending your business meetings and you don't know who your GSR is and your GSR is in name only and not attending district meetings and not attending assemblies. And if you're not giving them time to report back and tell you what's going on, how is that contributing to the unity of Alcoholics Anonymous? It's just not. And the other thing is the group conscience. And I know. Listen, I'll just turn one page, right? I could cheat the ultimate authority as he may express himself in our group conscience. But how much a tradition two is such an important part of tradition one? If I don't accept the group conscience, am I then not really a supporter of AA unity? And by the way, there's a double-edged sword here. I'm going to give you a little example. So I'm at a retreat. There's a lot of very active AA members there. I'm up on the podium. Uh, well, I'm on the dais to speak. The chairperson is at the podium. The chairperson says, and so-and-so is going to read the preamble. So-and-so read the preamble. When he started, he said, Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of people. At that time, like 50 people screamed out loud, men and women, okay? Because they don't like the group conscience. They don't like the current AA group conscience to change the preamble. I can respect them disagreeing. But here's the problem with what they're doing. By them saying that they get to change the literature, they're giving anyone else permission to change the literature. What right do they have to complain if somebody else changes something else in the literature? They only have the power to change the literature, those 50 people. It's a specially appointed AA you know, purification committee that gets to decide what we like and don't like. Because I'm going to tell you, those same people, if they went to their home group two weeks later, and someone changed how it works, they're not going to like that. That's why it is so important. And for literature with newcomers and AA unity, I don't want a newcomer to be confused about what's AA's message and what's not. And I know that I, listen, I came into my first AA meeting in 1981 as a teenager. I know that Daily Reflections has not been around a long time. I know that some groups use the 24-hour-a-day book forever. I'm not debating that. I'm not arguing it. In any group that I'm part of, my vote is to always use the Daily Reflections. But I'm not saying or putting down groups that do that. But when we start reading other literature in AA meetings... What's the slippery slope? Like, 
who then decides what's in and what's out. Now you can go to my, <coughs> my coffee table or my night table. I have tons of books that I love. I do. Tons of books about spirituality, even books about alcoholism that are not AA. But that's in my personal private life. At an AA meeting, I don't want a newcomer leaving thinking, oh, they use that book in AA. Oh, that book is AA. I was even talking to someone recently, and it reminded me how much why I have respect for the podium, so I can't say a certain word, but um, there are some parts of the country that have meetings called FTL meetings. Obviously, I can't tell you what the F stands for. The T and the L stand for the lamination. So it's FTL, the lamination. And what that means is those groups don't want newcomers to think that the promises are just on a piece of white paper that somebody reads at a meeting. Instead of knowing that they're the ninth step promises in the big book and reading them out of the big book. They don't want people thinking that how it works is just something that gets, you know, copied and thrown in the literature cabinet and handed out to someone to read. How much better is it for the newcomer to see how it works read out of an actual big book? So the newcomer knows where it's coming from. I'm, I'm even one to say that there's some really good books that have been written about recovery from alcoholism. But AA doesn't endorse any of them. And our unity, we need Tradition 6 to keep our unity together that we're not endorsing any of those books. And a lot of the current books, just my experience, because I read a lot, they don't believe in the stuff that Chris just said. They don't believe in the doctor's opinion. Hold on while I switch. Can you hear me now? You guys can hear me? Good. They don't believe in the doctor's opinion. They don't believe in certain things. That's why we need our literature to keep our unity. Um, inside, if you do have a Traditions Illustrated, um, I love this first little like bubble. Our individuals to sobriety depends on the group. The group depends on us. We soon learn that unless we curb our individual desires and ambitions, we can damage the group. Yes, we all have ambitions and desires. Um, we have to put them aside. The group has to come first. It has to. Um, the last thing I want to talk about is the minority opinion, which sometimes doesn't get talked about regarding unity. But if you read our history, unity is the whole reason for the minority opinion. The whole reason. The minority opinion isn't just so, I'm just going to use myself as an example, that I can tell everybody else they're wrong and they can applaud and tell me how right I am. 
the minority opinion isn't uh, there. It's not there. You know, we talk about it like it's this magic thing that someone's going to give this eloquent speech and everyone's going to vote a different way. That rarely happens, maybe 1% or 2% of the time. The minority opinion is there for unity. It is there to show the person, even if, they're, even if the vote is 20 to 1, the minority opinion is there to show that one person that unity is so important to us that we want to hear what you have to say. We don't need to have the last word. That's what the minority opinion is about. That's what Bill W. wanted everyone to understand. Yes, we talk about tyranny of the majority and tyranny of the minority. And that stuff is all good. And I've seen the minority opinion changed. But what we don't want is people leaving like what they have to say is not important or believing that just because they think different, it's not important. And sometimes that's a hard lesson to learn regarding unity. The preamble is a perfect example. I don't think we need to point fingers that you're wrong. You want to destroy AA or you're wrong. You're stuck in the 1920s and 30s, and you're some old dinosaur. Why do we need to go down those roads? Why can't we just embrace that God spoke through the group conscience? And unity is more important. And yes, maybe it's one of those rare things that the service manual calls a grave issue that should be appealed. And we've had some famous ones, and thank God. But the hardest thing to accept about unity is when is not when the vote goes my way. It's when the vote doesn't go my way. Am I going to embrace it? And I'll get more into this in tradition too, but unity is affected here. And you know. I want to talk about online a little bit. I travel a lot for work. A lot. I get up early. I don't like to, but I've just been trained to by my occupation. I tend to go to a lot of morning meetings. I can't believe looking at the meeting guide app and looking at local meeting directories, especially meetings between 7 and 8 a.m. in most places. Where there used to be one group, there is now two. Sometimes they have the same name. It's the in-person version and the online version that was created during the pandemic. And I wonder, I'm a big proponent of technology, but I wonder how good is that for our unity? And this is my own experience. I've met plenty of newcomers who got sober online during the pandemic, and that is awesome. I just saw one celebrate the other day, one one year sobriety. It's awesome. 
But for the most part, most of the meetings I go to, the online version has more of the members with time than new right now in this day and age, post-pandemic. And I wonder, have all these duplication of meetings really helped our unity? Or have they whittled it down a little bit? And those are individual group decisions to be made. But I think it's kind of telling when every morning group, it seems everywhere around, is now split in two. They have not backed together as the one group that they were. Um, I also want to talk about meeting format. Having a good meeting format is good for AA unity. Having guidelines for your group or bylaws is really good for AA unity. That way, everybody knows the group decided these things. Not me, not you, not the person who's been here for 50 years. So that's it. That's all I have. Have a great day. Thank you very much, Billy. We will now be taking a lunch break and meeting back here in one hour.